that's my kids, by the way, if you're new, uh, my teenagers. Can we give them a hand or something, I guess, maybe? Uh, I just want them to clean the room. They can work on that first. That would be awesome. Good morning. My name is Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here, and I've been gone last week. Me and my family got to go away for Thanksgiving a little bit, but also before that, we're on college tour time, so we were looking at colleges for our senior in high school who wants toddlers to bite ankles, and so uh, that's where we were, but thankful to have G and our amazing staff and, of course, amazing volunteers bringing the word. If you're new with us, we're thankful that you're here. If you're new online, we're so thankful that you're here as well. And uh, I wanted to dive right in. If you, if you are new or you slept, maybe had a food coma from uh, Thanksgiving dinner, wherever you were or whatever you were doing, we are in a series called Parables. And we're going through the end of the year. And we're looking at the stories that Jesus brought as he brings the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He brought a narrative or a story. And for us, it's really important to remember our purpose, why we're doing this, why we're going through this series, why it's important to study the words of Jesus and specifically the parables of Jesus. The purpose of this series, as a reminder, is to connect these stories of the kingdom of God to our everyday lives. And so this is part seven. We've been doing this for about seven weeks now today. And I think it's so crucial because we all have narratives or stories in our life. Maybe you don't, but I know I do. Maybe especially over Thanksgiving, there's a narrative from our hurts, maybe with family or frustrations or our fears. There's a narrative that goes on your head when that person says something and you come up with this narrative of why they said it, what was the motive, maybe it triggered something else in your mind. We're always in a story or a narrative in our head. And let me tell you, I know from my personal experience of almost 42 years coming up in January of life is that my narrative is not always right. The story I tell myself to get out of bed, the story I tell myself about what that person said or did is not always accurate, but there is always a story. There's a reason why Netflix will spend $200 million on a project they don't know will actually make a profit, but they're counting on it because we love story. We love to get in a narrative, in a story. We, sometimes it helps us deal with our own life or get out of our life. And escapism, story is everywhere. And Jesus came in to bring his story and the kingdom of God, a reality to our story. And this is why we go through these parables. So we're going to start, flip your Bible open, check out the screen behind you, light it up, turn it on, it'll all be there. Luke chapter 16, we're going to start with some context and then get into this parable about a rich man and Lazarus. So here we go. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, the things Jesus has been teaching, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Story to yourself. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he goes into a parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. But the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Powerful story. Yes, Today we're talking about hell right after Thanksgiving. You're welcome. I know this is intense, but it's a parable. And we're going to debunk some ideas about hell. Let's start first. If you've ever come across scripture or maybe church or people, you've, you've been around someone that, that is yelling from the street corner or in a train, if you've been on a train, or we have people that go to campuses, right, Earl, and they just like to yell out, you know, turn or burn and all these kind of things, hell, fire, brimstone, kind of bringing that narrative. In our culture today, somewhat rightly so, it is confusing, it is frustrating, it seems just wrong because we hear this question a lot. How can a good God send people to hell? Have you ever thought about this question? Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> this is a pretty powerful question in our culture. But there's so many things wrong with it. The first thing that's wrong with it is that we not just our questioning God, but we have the wrong narrative about what hell is. For instance, if you think about this concept of hell and even what we just read with kind of the Dante's Inferno idea of people just in flames screaming, you will get maybe a wrong narrative of what the Bible is saying. Because someone might ask, I can't believe this day and age in 2021 you would believe in like fire and brimstone and a hell at all 
in this day and age? How could you believe that? And I would say, well, I don't believe that. And you say, whoa, whoa, hold on. Some of you are like, what, did the pastor just say he didn't believe in hell? Well, no. I don't believe it in the sense that you're saying, like a literal fire and brimstone, literally. I believe the Bible talks about it metaphorically for something far worse than what we think. And Jesus talks about this a lot, not as a fire and brimstone preacher, but with a very different kind of narrative. Because see, if you just look at it for its base question, how could a good God send people to hell? You don't understand the whole narrative of the Bible. And this is dangerous. Sometimes to try to understand something over the years, we can oversimplify things to the point where it's not helpful and it's actually hurtful. Let me give you an example, my own, my own metaphor, my own parable, but it's with me. When I was growing up, uh, I played Pop Warner football, fourth grade, 10 years old. Did you play football when you were 10? Probably, you know, Earl is a good football player. I was I. I was in Lubbock, Texas, my first time to play football. And I remember playing PE football and I loved it, right? Like this flag or two below and we're playing. And I was, I was actually pretty good. So when I got in a Pop Warner, it was like, okay, you got pads on. And I remember putting that helmet on for the first time and it hurt. And I was like, I don't know if I like this anymore. Putting those pads on, fitting them. Literally, when I was a kid, we would have these drills where the person would stand about five yards away and you would do this and put, and they would just hit you to practice. We're talking about practice, right? Alan Iverson. This was like serious. Just get hit. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not that fun. And I remember I was short, like I still am, and stocky. And so my coach was like, okay, we're going to put Pate. That's my last name. We're going to put Pay on the out, as an outside linebacker. So he's like, stand right here. So I stood right there. And they would run this sweep play, pitch it off to the running back, and the tackle would come around and just hit me, nail me. And that first play, I mean, literally on my bottom. So I get up, and, okay, coach said, stand right here. They ran it again. Boom. Get up. They ran it again, boom, and I'm going, this is the stupidest sport. Why am I doing this? Stand right here and just get destroyed. How many of you guys know there's much more to football than stand right here? Horrible context, and I didn't understand because I was a rule follower. Like, my dad told me to do something. Like, I, I didn't get spanked in my home. I got whooped in my home, okay? This is serious. I was scared, and so I just followed the rules. And finally, my coach said, Pate, what are you doing? Move. And I was like, you told me to stand right here. And he's like, but don't let him hit you. I'm like, oh, well, this changes everything. And the guy came and he was waiting. And I said, Woo, right. And then go and make the tackle. And I'm like, okay, I can adjust. There's more to this game than stand right here. Now, when it comes to the idea and concept of hell, Many of us have only been taught one very simplistic idea, stand right here. And the culture just, 
That's stupid. What kind of a good God? This doesn't make any sense because we've made this over, overly simplistic idea that there's me and I live my life and then one day, depending on how God feels or how good I was or bad I was, I go to heaven or I go to hell. Now come to the altar. That is not the Christian message. So far wrong about what the Christian message is. Does that mean there's no hell? There is, but it's very different than that. Way overly simplified, stand right here and get knocked over and it doesn't make any sense and you're trying to figure it out message. And Jesus opens this up. Let me tell you, the Bible opens this up. The narrative isn't me, 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 and then if I did really good, I go here. If I didn't do good, I go there. So be afraid. That is a horrible message. That is not good news. And Jesus, who comes in this parable with a narrative, doesn't say anything like that. In fact, he comes in on the scene healing people, loving people, driving out demons, the hell that is in people. He comes in and says, I've come to bring the kingdom of God in this earth and in this hell that you have created. I've come as a messenger, as the messenger to drive the hell out of you, out of this world, to, like a surgeon, come in and remove the cancer without killing the person. This is what Jesus has come to do. And in fact, the Bible kind of starts this way. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the narrative of the Bible. Not me, all about me, 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 and then God is just going to decide. And every religion tries to figure out how good you have to be, how bad you have to be, how do you weigh all this? And Jesus comes in and says, nope, I've come to take over. I've come to get rid of the enemy occupied territory that is the earth. And I am going to drive the hell out of here. This is the message of the gospel. But it does come with pain. The good news is God is on the scene. Like C.S. Lewis would say in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan isn't here. He's come. But he's not a tame lion. He's dangerous because like a good surgeon, he's going to give you the good news. I can get that out of you, but the bad news, I got to get in you. You got to let me cut. You got to let me in. And this is the message of Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no mention of hell. Not because it's not there, but it's what man created in the fall. And see, God is so full of life. Like Pastor G just talked about a seed God's life is so abundant. When he creates man and woman, he says multiply, and it just goes forward, and he has so much life in him. It just exudes so much so. Death was never supposed to be a part of the equation. It was only life. That's why when someone you know dies inside you, you're like, this is not right. No matter how much the world wants to say, it's just a part of life. It was never meant to be, according to God's narrative. We brought on death. 
And this death is this separation from God. I can do things my way. Seizing autonomy from God to say, I'm going to live my way according to my rules, according to my thing, and God is going. That is not life. It always leads to death. And Jesus comes on this, the scene to say, I'm going to bring back and restore life. See, this is the narrative. Now we have to talk about hell, but we have to have the right narrative. Or it does just look like, stand here, get pummeled. There's not good news in that. But God answers this question. How can, we're going to talk about this by the end, a good God sent people to hell. Wrong question. Based on a wrong narrative. Here is a question a lot of theologians ask or pose How can a just God receive people into heaven? Let's talk about this. We're going to start in context in this parable. And the context is a couple of verses before we get to the parable in verse 19. We're going to look at verse 14 because it's good to know who is in the room. Who is Jesus talking about? When you read the Bible, you can't read it out of context. He actually has a reason for the people in the room why he's bringing this story. It's not just a random story. And so... We see, verse 14, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect that were started off really good in order to bring back good things and and bring back traditions and the synagogue and family and start obeying the law of God again. They started off really, really good, but like a lot of religion, then it can turn in on itself. And Jesus was very, very strong about rebuking, trying to stop the wrong narrative of the Pharisees that were trying to be good just to get stuff from God and to look good in front of people. They use their religion for the wrong way. And we see this. It says the Pharisees who were lovers of money. There we go. Heard all these things, the things Jesus has been talking about. And they ridiculed him. Now I need to stop here because we got to be careful. We are going to see a rich man and we're going to see a poor man. And it's really easy to think that God is just anti-rich. Like all rich people bad, all good people good. And I will say this, I know a lot of very wealthy people that are gold, that are amazing, that are generous. And I know a lot of poor people that are greedy and not great. Again, an oversimplification typically is dangerous, especially in our complex world. This is not what the Bible teaches. You can have really great poor people, really great rich people. It's not about that. It's about where your love is. And if your love is in money, you're not going to be generous with it because you can't lose what you love. You can't give what you love. You have to hold. And Jesus constantly is saying, don't let money rule you. And this is where the Pharisees are. And they're ridiculing him. So he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You have your own narrative about you and your goodness and who you are before yourselves, the narrative that you tell yourself to make yourself feel good, to go to bed at night, to think you're better than everybody else. You justify yourself. And he says, but God knows your hearts. Thank God he cares about the inner man, not just the outer like we get deceived by. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, we see someone rich, successful, with prestige and people around them, and we go, that's what I want to look like, because then if I had that, I'll be fulfilled. And yet, how many times do we need to see those people fall, whether it's a celebrity pastor 
or some type of celebrity that you can't handle that and it never gives you what you want. It is a consuming fire that always needs more and more and more and more and more and more. And isn't that what hell is? A consuming fire within us, with us, that disintegrates everything in us, literally disintegrates us, where we're not whole anymore because we're made whole by a God, but it separates all the categories of our life so that we can live our life to ourselves. Jesus starts with this context. Now, then he goes into this parable, which we're going to spend the rest of our time on. And there's a lot of things you could get out of this parable. We don't have time. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of questions after this. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to G afterwards. We love talking about the Bible. Go to your small group. Talk about it. Yes, we have small groups. Get involved in community. This is what the Bible is for. To surround ourselves in a common unity, community around Jesus' words. Three things that we're going to talk about that this does within the context of the parable. Number one, it exposes the truth about our true values, what we truly live for. It then imposes God's justice. And then finally, it juxtaposes God's love and justice. Juxtapose just means it compares or contracts, contrasts between the two. We're going to look at the comparison of how you need both. If you truly want justice, you also need love. And if you truly want love, it requires justice. Okay. Here we go. Let's start verse 19. Everybody with me? Yeah. Online, you're there. You're watching, making eggs. Okay, here we go. <laughs> there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So he starts this narrative that doesn't say, say everything about the kingdom of God, but specifically he's talking to the Pharisees. And they loved money. And so immediately they're like, okay, I know what you're saying, Right? Rich man, fine linens, fine clothing, had prestige. Why do you have fine clothing? Because you want to look good, look the part, because that's who you are. That's your identity. That's what you put on. And purple at that time was hard to get unless you had a lot of money. And this was a regal type color, right? And it says this. He feasted, feasted sumptuously every day. Thanksgiving was every day. Sounds like America, right? Every day, I heard one uh, comedian say, what, what do we do on Thanksgiving? We celebrate, we eat. We do that every day in America, right? Okay, is that too close to home? Okay, verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time we'll see in all the parables that we do that Jesus actually gives someone a name. Before, it was like the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the Levite, the priest. He doesn't usually give a name. There was a man. This, he actually gives a name. What's interesting about this name is the name Lazarus means God helps. And I think this is very peculiar, but Jesus doesn't faint on his words. Like he knows and he's very strategic about every word. And this poor man is laid at his gate, which means someone would have to bring him in. He's crippled and lay him at the gate every day. And his name is God Helps. And he's covered with sores. Right away, this kind of changes a lot of our narrative. God helps. Well, if God really loved me, why am I going through fill in the blank? If God is really here to help me, why do I have blank? 
Why my family? Why my things? And those are good questions because God does want to do good and restore, but God is here to help you with your most crucial needs. And that's not always our comfort, unfortunately. And anybody who sells that, run. Because they're trying to sell you to get something from you. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. Now, we need to define what suffering is. But there is elements of suffering that we must endure to the end, Scripture says. We see he's covered with these sores. So he has a disease, he's crippled, and he's laid at the gate every day. He doesn't have a lot to give to the world. Verse 21, who desires or desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. It's interesting. This is the same uh, uh, words that he uses when he talks about the prodigal son who was eating the slop and desired to be fed even what the pigs had before he came to his senses and went home to his father. Same verbiage. This is where Lazarus was. Moreover, this is horrible. We're getting the picture. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man had dogs, had an estate, ate well, everything was great. He looked good, had success. This guy's laid there crippled, diseased. And we don't even know this rich man. Maybe he's not even taking care of his own dogs or just the dogs in the area. Their food was this man's sores. Are you getting the picture here? The poor man died. And I love how Jesus plays on these words. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham being the father of the faith for them. The rich man, it said, also died and was buried. Again, we see Someone in that time, if they were buried or had a procession, had a burial, they had a lot of money. They had the means to be able to be buried in a tomb or something like that. So he was honored by men and buried. This other person just died, had nothing, and was carried by angels, which is actually better at the end. It says, and in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, what you need to realize is he would recognize Abraham. It means he's a Jew. He calls him later Father Abraham, which means he understood Jewish customs. Jews at that time believed they were God's chosen people. Everyone else was outside, and they would have to convert to Judaism in order to be God's people, to be about God's business, and be able to do things with God and be with God. Now, other people, anybody else, did not have that. And, and similar, we see this. He's looking at Abraham. He's recognizing him, so he knew the scripture. He knows kind of things about God, maybe. This isn't some lost person that's never heard of God. And he recognizes Abraham, and he sees Lazarus at his side, kind of like he used to be in his house, and Lazarus was there. And it says this. He's in torment. He lifts his eyes. He can see he can recall, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and get me out of here. 
It's not what it says. Have mercy on me and make a way. It's not what it says. Look what he says. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice he's not scratching up the walls trying to get out. In fact, he doesn't even ask to get out. He doesn't even have all the knowledge of what's happening yet. But he doesn't want out. He actually is still thinking he's better and more superior to the point where he's saying, send Lazarus, you know, that dude, send him to me. I don't want out. I want someone to come in. It's a very different picture of what we've heard growing up about hell and heaven. I don't want out. I'm here. One theologian said, hell is locked from the inside. I don't want out. I'm here. But I, I want relief because, listen, here's the deal. If you live your life from one hit to the next, from one relief to the next, from one comfort to the next, he's not asking to get out. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to change my lifestyle. I don't want a different life. I just want some relief. Very different. And yet Jesus would be the one that would be able to tell us what these things are about. Have mercy on me. Send him. He's treating Lazarus like a servant. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. I think this is very important. Number one, that he doesn't look at him and he goes, you're a sinner, you're lost, be quiet. But there is this compassion even in Abraham's heart. And you see the heart of God with this child. Another translation will say son. Well, see, we don't look at people outside with disdain. Everybody all right? We don't look at people outside with disdain. They're bad. They're out there. They're going to, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. If you do that, you are not acting like God. God has compassion. One of my favorite definitions of compassion is this. Your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. And he looks at him and he says, child, remember, what you considered good, you got. What, you, what your life was all about, the values in your heart, God is exposing it to him. What you thought was the best and life was worth living for, everything was about you, 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 you good, your good things, your prestige, your success, you got it. And Lazarus, in the same manner, what you thought was bad, that's what he got. But now he's comforted and you are in anguish. And then he gives them the information. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In other words, there's a permanency to God's justice in the next life. God gives you what you deserve, even more so what you really want, which we're gonna see here in a second. This is the justice that God imposes on us for our good. But we all understand just like if you watch any news, wherever you are politically, we don't do a lot of politics here because we are about Jesus and Jesus is not right or left or middle. He is different. Thank God. And that's what we center on in this church. If you want to center on one, you're in the wrong church. Like we'll love you and we'll hope that God can get some of that cancer out. Because it is cancerous 
to put your life in one political party, one ideology, one thing, when God says love, and I'm trying to drive the hell out in all of those things, okay? We want to help you. We want to encourage you. But for me and for us, we see Jesus going in and doing heart surgery within this context with these people and with this rich man. He says to him, I beg you, Father, send to him my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. In other words, he starts to blame shift. I didn't have enough information. I didn't know this is where we are. And this is what we do when we're in a really bad place. We say it's their fault, it's her fault, it's them. When we are in our own personal hell, instead of taking responsibility and what can I do because you can't change them, you can't change that. Oftentimes you can't change a lot of circumstances. You have about 5% that you can change. And it starts here and allowing God to come in and do the work. And he says, we got to tell them. And, and, and Abraham's response again, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the scripture. Do you know we have the word of God to give us the right narrative, to give us the good news, to, to shape and change our heart. And he said, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, no, but if they had a miracle, you ever talk to somebody like, I'll believe in God if he shows up right now. What's interesting about this, and you see this in scripture, is even in the, in the end of John, Jesus is there appearing in his resurrected body, holes in his hand. And at the end, there's like 500 people. It says 500 witnesses at one time. So this isn't just some like drug thing happening where they're all hallucinating. Like this is a real thing. And they will say in there, yeah, go talk to so-and-so. Like, they will substantiate it in Scripture. It's beautiful. And it says, some doubted. I love that. Because, see, when we believe something hard in our heart, like, we have this idea, if this happens, then I'll believe. If this will happen, then I'll believe. And God's like, listen, those things will happen. And he says it. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He's predicting even his own resurrection. Not everybody's going to be convinced. It's like the story of the guy who thought he was dead and was trying to tell all his friends, I'm dead, I'm dead. And they're like, no, bro, look, you're alive. Like, you're talking. You're, and he, he was convinced he was dead. And finally, they said, well, uh, do dead bodies bleed? And they're like, no, they don't, they don't dead bodies don't bleed. So they prick his finger and he starts to bleed. And he goes, oh, my gosh. And they're thinking, okay, finally, he realizes he's not dead. And he goes, dead men do bleed. <laughs> Because you know people like that no matter what they believe something, even if it doesn't make any sense at all. And this is what he's saying, even if a miracle came. And this is the Jesus who's walking on water, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing the miracles, and they're still ridiculing him because what's really in their heart. This is why Jesus has to share. And the, the parable ends and it's just ending like this because here's the deal. A lot of people use the, the idea of hell to motivate people to change, but that's a motivation from fear, and that is horrible. So what we've done is say, well, there's no hell then. And that's, hor that's equally horrible because we all want a sense of justice in life. The only people that don't really have vengeance and justice are people that's never been really hurt deeply. 
You know, you go somewhere where there's mass killing, slavery, and those people, the only way they know is to pick up a sword, you've got your family has been killed, I'm gonna kill. How do you stop that without saying one day there will be justice, one day God will make it all right? Because I've gotta make it right then. Listen, the idea of justice and judgment actually brings peace because we trust God to be the one that brings vengeance that God will make things right and he will give people what they justly deserve. Here's the deal. Fear is a horrible motivator to change someone's life. It makes things transactional, like, like a consumeristic, I give you this, you give me this. Yeah. I come to the altar, I get heaven instead of hell. And that is not the Christian message, and it's a horrible motivator. Why? Because in essence, it's saying, come get what you deserve from God. It's, God, I'll serve you if you do A, B, C, D, and E. And see, the gospel message is this. God did it. He not only, listen, this is the good news. He not only saw the hell that we created on earth, and as living people that will live forever will end up in one way or another. He'd only saw that. But he said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to become it. The Bible says he became sin for us. He said, if I get rid of all evil, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil in all the world? Couldn't a good dog God do that? Yeah, then he would have to kill you and you and you and me because what's in here? You see, we don't take sin very far. We, we fight here in our church because Houston is number one in human trafficking in the whole nation. Number one, human trafficking. We fight it in this church and we try to pull people out. We do what we can and we pray because we know that's a horrible thing to use someone to exploit someone that way. But Jesus comes in and he goes, that is horrible. But you know what's worse? Lust. I'm going to come and get the root. If you even look at someone, it's lust in your heart. And then we hate things like chattel slavery and slavery should have never existed. And we need to repent and it's horrible. And we will all say yes and amen, justice for all. And Jesus comes in and says, yes, it is horrible. But you know what? I'm going to come in. I'm going to get to the root pride and contempt. And I'm going to cut that out. This is the message of Jesus. This is the gospel. And it's us that says no. The Bible says this, but they loved darkness more than light. That's what it says. And we push him and we say, no, I know better. No, you're evil. You're bad. No, you're just here. Stand here. Boom. Stand here. Boom. That's not our God. That's not the scripture. He says, I come to drive it out. You know, if, if someone showed up to your house, and you aren't home. And they talk to you after and say, hey, I went by your house and I went inside and you weren't home, but I saw a bill on your counter. So I went ahead and paid it for you. Your reaction would be contingent on what bill it was. If you're like, that's my water bill, 60 bucks. Man, I appreciate that. If that was your college tuition bill that's been around, like a pet forever that I'm about to head into. 
you would fall down on your knees and cry. Here's why it's important to understand hell and understand it right, is that I deserve the God that I really want. C.S. Lewis says it this way, in mere Christianity, says it the best, I, can, I can't even say it better. Again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were gonna live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it will be. In his other book, The Great Divorce, he says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. God is not like a salesman trying to get you in a time chair and just harassing you and harassing you and harassing you, harassing you and harassing you. See, because one person's heaven might be someone else's hell. God is not gonna force himself on you for the rest of your life if you don't want him. In fact, the most loving thing, if a telemarketer called you constantly and never let you go and then pulled you and forced you into their home to do what you, they wanted you to do, listen, we don't call that love. We call that abuse. God is not gonna force you into his presence continually. He's not gonna force you into the kingdom of God and with him in the way that he lives and full of joy and love and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control, the fruit of the spirit. He's not gonna put you into that environment if you love something other than him because it will be hell for you. It would be hell for me. You say, how can a good God Loving God send people to hell. Number one, he doesn't send anybody. He gives you over to your desires, what you really want. And that's why the end of this message, as we get ready to take communion, the idea is this, what do you want? Do you wanna let the surgeon come in and remove the hatred, the pain, the bitterness, remove the sin, your past, pull it out so that you can live the life that he wants for you, in him, with him, to bring heaven to earth with him because you're full of him. But he won't force you because he is love. He won't make you because he is love. He wants you to want him. And you know why I want him? It's because no one else would not only die for me, but suffer and be forsaken by the Father as he is on the cross, says, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God. He descended into hell for me. Who else would do that? What else with all power would give it up so that I could be loved.
It's the love of God that compels me. It's the one who took that bill and he said, I paid it. And it's the greatest bill I could never have paid. And it's why the hymnist can write and pen the words, I give my life, my love, my all. If there's no hell, you don't see the extent of the love of God what he's willing to do to keep you from being separated. Hell actually makes his goodness and love way more than I could have ever imagined it would have been without. 